It's uh, been a privilege to study alongside Kai in several classes. We're in the same program. I have one more class, so I'll be finishing a little bit earlier than him. Um, but we're excited for you both getting married, too, this year. Today, we'll be completing our short two-part series on the doctrine of the church. Pastor Bob last week helped us understand the vital importance of the Holy Spirit at work establishing and building the church of God. What we saw in the early church, as recorded in the book of Acts, is the church functioning as a living organism, empowered by the Holy Spirit, growing naturally in maturity and size. Remember we saw in Acts 2, and, and thousands were added as they stayed faithful to the word, to prayer, to fellowship, and sharing the gospel. What we also see in Scripture is that as the disciples are being made and multiplied, they're gathered into local assemblies and organization is established among them. Structure an order to promote their ongoing maturity and multiplication. We see this later on in the book of Acts and, of course, throughout the epistles. We see the Holy Spirit at work uh, internally, appointing elders and leaders, uh, empowering the members of the church with spiritual giftedness and, and order in exercising those spiritual gifts. And I find it helpful for our study of the church to acknowledge these two uh, interconnected fundamental aspects of the nature of the church as organization and organism, both aspects established and sustained entirely by the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that illustrates the church as a living organism, namely the living body of Christ. And yet, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is written to and addressing issues within a specific organized local church body. Before we begin our study, it's important that we acknowledge there are several metaphors for the church that we see throughout the scriptures. The bride of Christ, the household of God, family of God, the temple of God, each metaphor shining light on, on a particular aspect of the beauty of the nature of the church. And as I mentioned today, um, we'll be looking at the church as the living body of Christ. And I'm going to start by defining um, the church with respect to our study this morning. Just a definition uh, that I crafted. We can pull that up on the screen the church being a diverse, interdependent body of believers who exist for one another, the world, and ultimately the glory of God. The church is a diverse, interdependent body of believers who exist for one another, the world, and ultimately the glory of God. We'll be unpacking this definition today uh, throughout, the, throughout the passage that we'll be studying. And then I hope that in understanding the essence of the church, who we are, we would be able to, to see how we are to function in the world, what we do. Before we begin, let's say a word of prayer together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit at work in and among us. 
Thank you for the cross. Thank you for, for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the unity that we have in the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the church, oh God. I think of the psalmist who, who cried out in Psalm 16, as for the saints in all the land, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. I pray that this morning you help us acknowledge one another as majestic. Help us see the church as majestic. Help us delight more and more in the church as we come to delight more and more in you, Father. Bless your word now as I preach it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, our God and our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers can pass out Bibles now. Um, we'll be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Kai was just uh, teaching on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a little bit, so we'll be kind of in the same section there in the book. But Paul's chief concern in his letter to the Corinthian church is for peace and unity within the body. In his greeting, in the, in, the, in the greeting of his letter, he addresses those called to be saints with all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which would extend to us, of course. He begins the letter urging, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, we're not here, we're in the beginning of the book, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. As Kai mentioned, he's addressing a serious issue in the church where some are closely identifying with some, others closely identifying with others. There's all sorts of hierarchies and, and classes of people being established and divisions and strife and jealousies. There's all sorts of unhealthy tolerances at play in the church, and by the time Paul gets to writing chapters 12 through 14, his focus is on the corporate gathering of the church. He goes into detail illustrating the nature of the church and its intended function. He explains for us what the church is and then how it ought to function. And this is so important to Paul because the stakes are so high to not know who we are and how we are to function in this household and the world. His burden, as we see in chapter 1, verse 8, is that they remain strong until the end, found blameless in the day Jesus comes back. Family, to come to church is one thing, but to become the church and persevere to the end as the church is another. Paul urges us to heed his counsel so that we too together persevere to the end. <clears throat> Let's read through the chapter here. We'll start it, we'll read through it section by section. Let's read verses. One through three. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The opening line here can literally read, now concerning the spiritual, or the spiritual matters, or spiritual things. As you notice, you see gifts is, is italicized. It's not explicitly there. That's, that's an interpretation. And, and although I agree that, that the spiritual matters Paul is addressing would include the spiritual gifts, I see it more fitting to, to, to read this as, as Paul uh, addressing spiritual matters that extend beyond just the spiritual gifts. And we'll see that in our, in our study today. Paul seems to be, the, these first few verses, verses can be confusing. There's been much debate over the, the meaning of these verses, its connection to the rest of the chapter. Some, you know, it, it seems kind of disconnected at times. But Paul seems to be establishing criteria for authentication or credibility for who and what is truly of the Holy Spirit of God, which would be consistent with chapter 2 and chapter 14 in the book. He says, whoever says, Jesus is Lord, that's of the Spirit. In other words, whoever behaves and speaks and lives in such a way that Christ is exalted through them and that they point others toward the Lordship of Christ and the awe of Christ, that person is truly of the Spirit. This is so important to Paul because the Spirit marks the identity as, as a disciple of Christ. The Spirit marks the, your identity as a child of God. It, he marks your, your membership in the body, uh, your unity in the body. The Spirit marks the, is the basis for all new spiritual life. So let's read on now. We'll read through straight through from verses 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, remember my definition of the church, a diverse body of believers. Look at how Paul describes the church body. Can you see the diversity in unity? Do you think he's emphasizing here? Track with me. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Varieties, varieties, varieties. Literally, differences, differences, differences. Same, same, same. Let's move on to 8 through 11. To one and to another, to another, to another, to another. Nine times. One spirit, one spirit, same spirit. One and the same 
spirit. You see his emphasis? Diversity in unity. Now, look at how his logic flows. Trace with me back from verses 4 through 11. We see right here first, varieties of gifts, same spirit. Varieties of ministries, same Lord. Varieties of effects or outcomes, workings, same God. Anything stand out to you there? Spirit, Lord, Jesus, God, Father. There's a Trinitarian connection that he's making here. Paul is being intentional here. We know that our God is one in essence who eternally exists in, as three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. What Paul's saying here is the unity in diversity or distinctness which characterizes God is the, universe, is the unity in diversity which should characterize the church. Unity in diversity has its roots in God, as we see in verses 4 through 6. God then, in verse 7, manifests this diversity by his Spirit through the believers in the church for the common good. That's the united whole. Then, in verses 8 through 10, we see specific examples further elaborating what the diversity uh, looks like, the diversity of the body in the unity of the Holy Spirit, to finally get to verse 11, bringing it all back around to the one God who works all these things as he sees fit for his ultimate purposes. Now, look again, I know we're kind of bouncing around, but it's a good study. Look again with me at verses 4 through 7. First, there are a varieties of gifts, ministries, outcomes, or effects workings of the Spirit. But then you have this overarching category which encapsulates all the above, manifestations of the Spirit. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, I'm going to try to make this as, as easy to understand, as simple as possible, because I think it's so important for us to, to get this. To each one, that is, every individual who has acknowledged and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ is a professing believer born again into the, 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 a new spiritual life of knowing God. Every believer in Christ has been given, from God that is, the manifestation of the Spirit. Manifestation to show Spirit God. So every believer in Christ is given special gifts or abilities to show God. To who? To each one has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Common good referring to the whole body, the corporate assembly, the church. Believers are brought into the body and given gifts for the body, for its well-being and nourishment and, and growth and maturity. 
First, we come to know God, and then we live to show God. Those who know God show God. We show God to one another and to the world around us. If let's, I just want to break down what this looks like real quick, because I know this might, hopefully it's simple, but what does that look like, to show God? If you know God, you would know that God loves people. You would know that he seeks after people to do good to them, to protect them, to provide for them, to support them, and strengthen them. So how do we show God? The same way, by loving people one another, by seeking after people, showing care for their well-being and their maturity, protecting and providing for, for people. After receiving God's love and ongoing care, we extend God's love and ongoing care. If you believe and follow Jesus Christ, you are here not for yourself, but for everybody else. Yes, you're here for your well-being. That, that goes without saying, I hope. But you're also here for the person in the front, left, right, behind you, and all around you. Remember my definition of the church. A diverse, interdependent body of believers who exist purpose for one another. The world and ultimately the glory of God. This is our purpose in Christ, in the church, to build up and strengthen the body of Christ. We see throughout, these, throughout the scriptures, Ephesians 4, if you don't know God, you can't really show God. That makes sense. If you don't know God and you want to know God intimately, well, first things first, you need to come to Christ. You've been hearing the gospel in song, in communion, throughout this service so far. We need to first acknowledge who God is, what he has done for us in his great love for us through sending his son, Jesus, and we need to come to Christ. We need to, we need to cry out to him, ask him to, to fill us with his Holy Spirit that we might know him and live with him more uh, fully and intimately. But if you claim to know God and don't show God, or worse, don't care to show God to others, well, then there's a conflict. You need to ask yourself, do I really know God? And if you, this might be confusing, if you know that you know God and you want to show God to others, you want to demonstrate and, and show and extend the same love and care that you receive from God, well then, let's identify your giftedness and get you plugged in to the body. We need you. Look, have you ever asked yourself, why do I listen to this former lunatic? <laughs> yeah, me. Why do I listen to this former con artist, thieving heroin addict? 
Honestly, I don't know why you do. But I do know one thing, that God has done something extraordinary here and then has sent me here to be with you all. And I just hope that I am carrying out my purpose and my function in this body for the sake of the body. And I hope that God is doing something through it. And I trust that he is. Amen. I did not want to draw that attention to me. The point of the matter is, if there's a place for me in this body, you better believe there's a place for you, right? Because God is at work in every one of us and has uniquely wired and designed you for a specific intended function. Look at verse 11. Each one just as he desires. You have a unique and very special gift intended specifically for you to give to others. Spiritual gifts are given to be given. We need it. Now, I, along with others, have affirmed a gift of, of preaching and teaching, and so, so that's what I'm doing here. I'm trying to show God in my preaching. But Christ wasn't only a preacher. Mark 10.45, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Servers, where are you? Identify with Christ and show God in your service. Teachers, leaders, where are you? Identify with Christ and show God in your teaching, in your leadership. Counselors, comforters, prayers, identify with Christ and show God in your care and intercession for others. Givers, identify with Christ and show God in your generosity, in your giving. Do we get the point? Here at Riverstone, we are trying to strengthen our growth group, our growth group ministries, and we need support. We have many children's ministries, we need support. Outreach ministries, we need support. Care ministries, we need support. Young adult youth ministries, we need your support. Men's and women's ministries, we need your support. There's a place for you, and we need your gift. Now, this concept of purpose existing for others, this can be really hard for American Christians to understand and, and really embrace. I'll explain why. America is in the business of raising up individuals toward their own prosperity, their own achievement and advancement toward their own well-being. But God is in the business, and always has been, of raising up a community. A community that exists for the well-being of the community, for the prosperity of the community, for the advancement and growth of the community. So when these two great powers at work collide, what you have is 
believers in Christ who come to the church seeking their own well-being and prosperity, their own advancement, their own well-being. We come to the church too easily thinking, what does this church have for me? Does this church meet my needs, my wants, my desires? And you see how quickly and how easily, if we're not, if we're not sensitive to these two powers, that we're, if we're not sensitive to these two worldviews and, and how they can, how they can, can synthesize here, if, we, if we're not sensitive to that, then we approach the church with a distorted perspective of who we are and what we're here for. We need to be aware of this, family. The freedom and, and, and privileges that we have in this country is a wonderful thing. It really is. It is truly wonderful. But we need to be careful not to blend these two worldviews and distort who we are and our purpose. Let's read verses 12 through 14 now. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, whether, uh, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Notice the three fours at the beginning of these verses, for even, for, by, for the body. Paul is grounding his argument of the for the diverse nature of the church in these fundamental points. And then in these verses, we see him transition his argument, showing the diverse yet interdependent nature of the church. He says, the church is the living body of Christ. It's comprised of many different members of all sorts of ethnic, religious, social, cultural backgrounds. Now, today, this, this diversity would, as, as we can, can practically see, would also include worship and church customs, traditional, contemporary, liturgical, this would include boomers and millennials, older, newer ways of doing ministry expressions. and also this, the, the, He's saying the church must be diverse, for if it was just one group, it would be no body at all. All these members united by the Spirit in the one body of Christ. Now, verse 13 highlights the endless reaches of the gospel and illustrates also the witnessing effect that the body has in the world. It implies the witnessing effect that it has in the world by including the spectrum of these, these people groups, which, which Paul also further explains in, in chapter 14. Remember, those who know God show God to one another and the world. Our extraordinary unity in diversity, our love and care for one another is a powerful witness to the world, testifying that we know God and that God is with us. Amen? Now, think about this. We just studied numbers. If 
the people in the encampment when they were in the wilderness, if they wanted to experience God, where would they go? To the tabernacle in the center of the, in the, center of the camp. And then as the people moved into the promised land and eventually grew into a kingdom under David and Solomon, if the people wanted to experience God, where would they go? The temple. Today, if the people want to experience God, where do they go? Paul says just eight chapters earlier in chapter 3, do you not know that you, plural for the body, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Peter affirms this by saying, you, the church, are living stones being built up into a spiritual house with Christ as the chief cornerstone. This is who we are. So that, Peter says, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what we do. Family, we are the living body of Christ, and God is encountered and experienced among us through God at work in and through each one of us. Let me, let me give an example of what this looks like. If you need to understand the extent of God's grace and forgiveness, well, we need to talk, because I got a personal story for you. If you need to understand more of God's comfort and mercy, you need to talk to one of our many members who are enduring the hardships of cancer and various sicknesses right now among us. If you need to know more about God's sovereignty over all things, you need to talk to members like Terry Dunn or Mark and Karen Johnson. Ask them how their year has been. Ask them if they've seen God at work. You want to learn more? You need to know more about God's guidance? Talk to Yana. Ask her how her year's been. You want to, you want to learn more about, about God's heart for the lost? You need to get to know, should you? You need, to, you need to get to know John and Nancy Andrews. You need to talk to Gina Waltersdorf or Helen Arn. You need to meet young Ian Stowers or, or, or even the Holman girls. You want to learn about, about God's heart for Syrian refugee children? Talk to the Holman girls. Ask them what they did during VBS. You get the point? I hope so. There is a direct correspondence between knowing others in the body more intimately, and knowing God more intimately. We so need each other. I'm having breakfast with Joseph Menti next Sunday. Is he here? Maybe next, maybe next service. And I can't tell you how happy I am. I am so excited to have breakfast with this guy because I can't wait to learn what it is that makes him so happy. I, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I can't wait to learn about how much more God has blessed me by bringing him and his wife here. And this extends beyond our household. Our Middle Eastern team just got back yesterday. Ask them, ask them what their most impactful point, part of their trip was. I guarantee they will all say with a resounding 
getting to know our brothers and sisters and how God is at work in them. Guarantee. All our, all our teams would say that. We so need each other. Paul says here in verses 12 through 14 that the church is comprised of many members. That is, a variety of parts and functions united in one interdependent body. And no member, no body part is indispensable. They are all necessary for healthy function. Now, what we're going to see in verses 15 through 27, Paul identifying two illnesses that are often found in the body which hinder its growth and well-being. Two illnesses, self-debasement and self-sufficiency. Let's take a look. Let's read verses 15 through 20. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole, body, if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. It's clear here that the members are referring not to gifts, but to people, members of the body of Christ, looking at themselves and others. Notice the imagery. You have, you have the foot looking up to the other parts, deeming itself useless or of lesser value than the others. Self-debasement. Verses 15 and 16, feeling less than others. They don't need me. Of what value would I possibly be to the church or to them? Paul says that's an illness. Doesn't do anybody good, neither you nor the body. And it's just not true, he says. In verse 18, just as he wills. Again, there is intentionality from God at work here. There is uniqueness and an important function for you in this body. Paul says, this is common phenomena. You better be careful how you view yourself and others. Let's read verses 21 and 22. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now we have the head and the eye looking down to the feet. I think the imagery is intentional here, saying, I have no need of you. Self-sufficiency feeling as if you don't need the others for whatever reason it is that you believe. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's just, I'm too busy, I'm good. I, I, don't, I don't need any of this connecting, connection stuff. I don't need smoke, I don't need that. I'm good with just going on Sundays. Maybe it's just you're looking at others and saying, eh, I don't know, they're just different. I don't really care to get to know them. Paul's saying, whatever, kind, whatever unbiblical, unspiritual reason it is that you have for, for, for separating yourself and avoiding the members of the body, he said, that's an illness. 
They're necessary, he says. Without them, you haven't experienced the fullness of joy. You haven't truly experienced what it is to be a member in the living body of Christ. They seem, verse 22, to be of no value, but oh, how wrong you are. And he says in verses 23 to 25, And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our presentable members have no need of it honor, that is. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul says, those who appear to be of lesser value to the body, you make sure you honor them, because their roles in the body are indispensable, invaluable, Let me ask you something. When you go home, and if you, hopefully, reflect on your worship service, or throughout the week, reflect on your church, who are you grateful for? It's way too easy to think of those like Ben, Pastor Bob, Pastor Tom, Pastor John, Jeremy, myself, Paul says, we don't need the honor. We're front and center. We get enough. Now, what I'm not saying is dishonor or do not show honor to your leaders. That's not the point here. He's saying, saying, don't forget everybody else. And let me tell you, the honor and gratitude that you show us is, is what motivates us. Thank you, sincerely. Don't forget everybody else. I wonder if you think of Mindy, or Nancy, or Amy, or Tracy, or Christy, the glue that holds our church together. Let me tell you something. I could not be the leader I am, and our missions program would not be where it's at today without these ladies. Thank you. We need you. We need you. I wonder if you think of Janet Miller and Kim Rhodes, who spend every Sunday downstairs overseeing our children's ongoing discipleship. Important? Necessary? The future of our church? I think so. Janet and Kim, I know you hear us down there through the loudspeaker. We need you. Thank you. We love you. I wonder if you think of our bus drivers, our greeters, our ushers, our security, our our money counters, our cafe workers, the ones who sacrifice majority of their their worship services so that we as a church can hold and transport and place and connect and nourish and protect all our members. Thank you all. We need you all. Thank you, Setup and Breakdown Crew. Thank you, Kai and Walt. 
who, get our, who, who set our places to put us in a position of worship on Sundays and throughout all our ministries throughout the week. Thank you, everyone else unnamed who are vital to the health of this body. Look at verse 25. Paul reinforces his chief concern, their unity and interdependency. Look at his concern, that there be no divisions. And what else? What's the opposite of divisions, he says? Not, not merely unity, care. Not merely unity by association, but deep levels of care for one another. The same care, impartial care, showing no favoritism. He says, the church, the living body of Christ, should be so intimately connected to one another that verse 26, if one member suffers, all members suffer. If one member is honored, all members rejoice. He says, it's who you are. Verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You are the church. We are the church, the living body of Christ. God has brought us into the church to be the church and build the church. Amen? Until the day that he comes back and brings us home as his beautiful, blameless bride. What is your function in the body of Christ? What is your function here? How will you grow? How will you help us grow? Don't deprive yourself of the fullness of joy and the fullness of life that Christ came and died for you and came to bring for you. Don't deprive us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have called us out of the world of all the peoples in the world. You have set your electing love upon us. Thank you, Jesus, that on the cross you were forsaken, that we would be welcomed into the family of God. We are forever grateful. Lead us in unity, O oh God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit to build one another up. Help us love one another the same way you love us, that we seek to mature this body individually and collectively to grow more and more into the image of your Son to the day you bring us home, that we will be with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.